Scripture reading this morning comes from uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. You can find that in your Bible, in your bulletin, or on the screen above me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Scott. Good morning, church. Well, in 2014, the Nobel Prize was awarded to its youngest ever recipient. Her name, uh, Malala Yousafza. She was 17 at that time. And she would go on in six years in 2020 to actually get, finish her education and get a bachelor's degree from one of the colleges of Oxford. Why did she get the Nobel Peace Prize? Well, she got it for her fight, her activism, so that every girl, child, would have the right to an education. Now, this, this is astounding news. It's wonderful news. But to really, really appreciate how great of a news this is, you need to know some bad news about Malala's story. And it goes like this. She grew up in... Pakistan, and when she was 10 years old, the Pakistani Taliban, they came to her region, invaded the region, took over, they closed all of the girls' schools. Uh, they prohibited the women from having any kind of active role in their society. And so just like that, Malala had lost her ability at the age of 10 to, to have any more education. And she took to activism. And she got the opportunity when she was young to, to give a speech at a local press club. This is what the title of her speech was. How dare the Taliban take away my basic right to education. Very provocative. And for sure it caught the attention of the Taliban. And, and they were mad. And they went and they sought her out and they did what? They shot her in the head. And so when we look at the backdrop of all of this bad news, why is it so great that, that she was able to go to Oxford and get a degree? Why was it so great that she was recognized for this activism? Well, she shouldn't even have been alive. And yet not only was she alive, she, she was recognized across the world, and she went on to get a wonderful 
education. You see, understanding the bad news of Malala's story helps us appreciate and understand just how great the good news is. And so when, when we're coming to this section in the book of Romans, I want you to realize that. The first couple uh, sermons that we've gone through, we've unpacked. Paul has introduced to us a little bit about the good news, but now he's going he's gonna to diverge from that. And for the next five sermons, all the way until chapter 3, verse 21, Paul is going to be unpacking the bad news of the gospel, and we need to understand the bad news of the gospel in order to understand and appreciate how good this good news is of Jesus. So when we come to our passage this morning, starting in verse 18, Paul is going to start with that bad news, and the bad news is the wrath of God. The wrath of God, why? Because we are ungodly and unrighteous. And then he's going to go and show us how this progresses. It progresses by man rejecting God and then man replacing God. So let's look first at that bad news of the gospel, the wrath of God in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You know, I can't think of any worse news for mankind than the wrath of God, our creator, towards us. There is no worse news on planet Earth than the fact that our creator has wrath towards his creation. And many Christians think this is a very unpopular topic. It's certainly an unpopular topic in the world. And for some Christians, they have this idea that the God in the New Testament is a God of love and the God of anger in the Old Testament is no longer. I think part of the problem when we consider the wrath of God is we take our understandings, our expression of wrath, and we project it upon God and not realize that God's wrath is a perfect and just wrath. And so this is a very unpopular topic. I, you may be here this morning. You're ready to tune me out, close me out, pick up your phone and, and play games. I want you to hang with me for a little bit. And I want you to consider this idea about God's wrath, that his wrath is actually an expression of his perfect love. His wrath is an expression of his perfect love. You see, if God is a God of love, and his love is perfect, not like ours. It's deeper and more perfect than we could ever imagine. Shouldn't he express just the opposite towards things that threaten, that thwart, that violate, that harm the objects of his love? If God is morally perfect, if he is drawn towards righteousness and holiness and goodness, shouldn't he on the other hand, also equally be repulsed by unrighteousness and by evil. Would he really be a God who is perfect in love and perfect in righteousness if he was cool or indifferent towards evil and unrighteousness? You know, I want you to consider, what is it, what is it that you love? 
Think about even on a, on a human level, what is it you love? Maybe if you're a parent here, you're thinking of your children. And, and fathers here, I want you to think of your daughter. And if your daughter goes out on a date and she is mistreated, if she is terribly mistreated, if she, was, if she is harmed in some way, your anger as a father is going to rise against that. Why? Because of your deep love towards your daughter. It will rise because you love her so much. A God who is one who is perfect in love must perfectly express his wrath as well. Otherwise, it would be a contradiction. He would not be perfect in love if he did not express his wrath towards evil. Think in the New Testament. Think of Jesus and, and when he got angry. And I want you to think of, if you're a student of the Bible, you know of the scenario when he cleansed the temple. You can find this in Mark chapter 11. Actually, the interesting thing is this account is recorded in all four Gospels. <laughs> and I think it must have left an impression on the apostles to, to write these accounts, that Jesus was there in the temple going berserk, flipping tables, driving out the money changers. And why was he doing that? Well, they had set up shop in a place called the outer court. And why was that significant? Well, the outer court was the place where the rest of the nations, the rest of the people who were not Jewish, were to come and to worship and to have access to God. But that place was no longer. It was a place of commerce. Money was being exchanged. Sacrifices were being sold. Jesus would call them a den of robbers. So he's giving us an indication that it's not just a convenience. No, there's something deeper going on here. These, these people were taking advantage of, of other people. Right, you see, people would travel to the temple from all sorts of places to offer their sacrifice. And sometimes it's not convenient. Sometimes you wanted to get your sacrifice right there at the temple. That's a good thing. That's a convenient thing. But Jesus is saying they are robbing you. It would be like that, that gas station or store out in the middle of nowhere that is jacking up their prices because they know they got you. You don't have a choice. Jesus gets angry because of his great love. He's a God of love. He loves justice. He loves mercy. He loves goodness. And when he sees this evil, he cannot be cool towards evil. B.B. Warfield, some of you may know him. He, some call him the, the last greatest theologian from Princeton. This is what he would say about Jesus. Compassion and indignation rise together in his soul. Together. In other words, they're two sides of the same coin. They have to exist together. If we want a God who is loved by necessity, we want a God of wrath. We don't want a God who puts up with evil, who is cool towards evil. And our scripture in verse 18 is saying that God's wrath is revealed against men because of their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. 
And that ungodliness and that unrighteousness, it progresses. And so this is how Paul unpacks it. Secondly, that man in his unrighteousness and and ungodliness, he rejects God. We see this in verses 18 through 21. And then starting in 19, you'll see this to set it up, that God has made himself known in his creation. In verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power. His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We can see God by looking at his creation. We can see something about him, his attributes. The scripture is telling us right here that he is divine in nature. He is not a human. And that he's eternally powerful. And so an all-powerful divine being who dwells outside of time, who lives forever, created the universe. So when you look up and you consider the universe, when you look at the expansiveness of the galaxies and the trillions and trillions of stars, when you consider planet Earth, how it's so perfectly positioned in its distance from the sun to sustain life, when you consider how complex Earth's ecosystem is, how everything is somehow needed and working together, when you consider the complexities of the human body, how, how all, the, all our cells and our neurons and our brain and organ, all this is working together to, to create an intelligent being, out of matter, one that, that is not just intelligent, can think and create and appreciate things that are beautiful. What place is there for beauty if we are just cells and neurons firing? Why do we universally look at sunsets and sunrises and mountains and say that is something beautiful? The psalmist would say this, in 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Why is it beautiful? Because it speaks of a glorious, beautiful, eternal, powerful, intelligent designer, God himself. Someone far greater than us has designed everything that we see. And so it's like creation is writing a story, singing a song about its creator. But we see in verse 18 that man rejects God. And our form of, re- of rejection starts with suppression of the truth, suppression of our knowledge of God. You see, everyone on planet Earth knows that God exists. The scripture says it is plain to them, but it is a choice that we suppress our knowledge of God. And so think about it this way. Our rejection of God, our suppression of the truth, it's not an intellectual issue because we have the information. God has given us so much information, evidence, testimony, that he exists. It's not an intellectual issue. It is a moral issue. 
It's a moral issue. It stems in our heart, not in our brain. We have the information, so it is our heart that is resistant to God. It's a moral issue because if he is God, if he is the one who created you this morning, who is giving you life, who has given you breath, who has placed you in this world and created it for you to live in, you have an obligation to this God. In verse 21, that obligation, at the very least, is to honor him. In other translations, that word is translated to worship him or to give him glory and also to give thanks to him. You know, it's like as parents, if you've got kids growing up in your household and they get to that teenage age and they are, they've been eating your food, they've been using up your electricity, you've been putting clothes on their back, you've been taking them everywhere, you've been doing all this for them, and they never, ever thank you. They never, ever acknowledge that you are providing and caring for them. And, f- and to go even further, they reject you. They reject you. That's what it would be like. It's, it's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. Your kids surely know where that food is coming from. What characterizes man in this way? In verse 21, it says, futile thinking and the darkening of a foolish heart. Foolish and futile. Foolish because you're, you're living your life in an unwise way. You're living your life apart from the one who created you. But futile because you're living your life on your own, own terms. You're going your own way. And it's a waste. It's without purpose. It's in vain. You were created to live in relationship with God, to honor him, to give thanks, to worship him. And you've chosen to go your own way. And so man, he not only rejects God, we go our own foolish and futile way. But there's another progression of how we show our unrighteousness, and it's this, that man replaces God. Verses 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We reject God, and we find a substitute for God. We replace him. We worship anything but God. And you may look at verse 23 and you may laugh a little bit. Recognize the context that the early church was influenced by the Greeks and the Romans and the pagans. They worshiped these things. And we look at it and say, well, in America, we don't, we don't worship those things. We don't bow down to those things. It seems kind of foolish. But scripture, as we unpack it, shows us idolatry is a matter of our hearts. In Ezekiel, this is what God would say, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. You see, we all worship something in our hearts. Something is grabbing the desires and the affections of our hearts. 
We give our hearts to it. We devote ourselves to it. We devote our time, our talent, our resources to it. And it may not look as unsophisticated as what the Romans did, but consider that some of us will worship a career, a house, a car, mortal man, a person, a relationship. What is that one thing in your life that has grabbed your affections above God? What is that one thing in your life, if, if, if taken from you, it's going to crush you? What is that thing that has become ultimate to you? What have you replaced God with? Only God, only our creator, who, who made us, who knows everything about us, only him, he was meant to satisfy every longing and every desire of our hearts. And we enter into false worship, we replace God when we set our affections on something greater than God. And so what? When we come to a passage like this, you may be here this morning, you may be a believer in Christ, and you may be wondering, like, well, how, what am I supposed to take away from a passage like this? I want you to recognize that the letter was written primarily to Christians, to the Roman church. Yes, there are unbelievers in the midst there. But he is writing to believers as well that they should remember that, that what we've talked about here described you. If you are a believer in Christ, you were unrighteous. You were ungodly. You suppressed the, the knowledge of God, the truth. You rejected him. You decided to go your own way and live a vain and futile Existence, you replace God in your life because you didn't want Him in your life. Paul is wanting us to recognize that's who we once were. And by default, what does it mean? Scripture says that we were without excuse, excuse, and we deserve God's wrath because of our unrighteousness. And that's the bad news. That's the bad news, and it's the bad news that helps us understand how exceedingly great the good news is. And so if you're here this morning, maybe you've become a little bit cool in your relationship with God. Maybe you're struggling to find things to give thanks about. Maybe you're struggling to honor him and, and engage in worship. Maybe your relationship is a little bit cool. And I would say this, Paul would say this, have you forgotten what you have been saved from? What you deserved was the wrath of God. Have you forgotten this bad news? Remember the bad news of the gospel and let it drive you to the good news of Jesus. And he will inflame your heart with thanksgiving once again. He will inflame your heart in worship when you realize that his wrath Yes, it was revealed, and his righteousness revealed at the same time, all of it coming together at the cross in Jesus, that God's wrath would be poured out for you upon his righteous and perfect son. Why? Because his burning and deep love 
towards you. You see, we don't come to this understanding about God because somehow we're smarter than the person that's sitting next to us. We've put all the clues together, and now we've figured it out and come to God. It's, it's a moral problem. It's not an intellectual problem. No, God has to take our dead heart and reach in and give us grace and set his love upon us so that we can see, yes, there is a God He's revealed himself in his son, Jesus. And if you're here this morning, you've yet to follow Jesus in faith. I want to encourage you in this way. Every single one of us here this morning can be described by what Paul has described for us this morning. You either were in that condition or you're in that condition now. But we're all the same. We all are the same and that we've rejected God. But I think the scripture this morning, if you have yet to place your faith in Christ, is asking you, it's begging this question, is that still where you're at this morning? That God is singing to you in all of creation that he's a glorious God, he's a beautiful God, he's a loving God, and yet you want to press down that truth. You want to go your own way. Live life on your own terms. You want to reject him. Scripture is, is begging to ask that question of you. Let that bad news draw you to Jesus. You may be here this morning, and, and, and you've heard of, surely you've heard of the crucifixion, the cross of Jesus. And you know what? That, that act in history it was an evil, it was a cruel, it was a tortuous act. And you're never going to wrap your head around why that even makes sense until you understand the bad news of the gospel. And so let the bad news of the gospel draw you to the good news of Jesus and let it draw you to trust in him for your salvation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left us on earth without a knowledge of your greatness, of your goodness, of your beauty. That you take care of this earth. You take care of everyone on planet earth. And you have come near in your son, Jesus. And in Jesus, we see the face of God, goodness and love and mercy and, yes, even the wrath. And we thank you, Lord, for such a Savior who would take upon himself the perfect wrath of God in our place. We praise him. We give you thanks. We honor him this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen.